Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. It's the second Sunday of a new message series where we're calling Identity Thief, and we're parking ourselves in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you can go there with me. Let me tell you a little bit about this city. In this city was a grand theater seating over 20,000 people. Here's a picture of it right up here on the screen. You can see it there. You can visit the ruins today. This is the very place where when there was an outbreak in the city, a little skirmish, because the Apostle Paul had been preaching, it was affecting life, it was affecting commerce, and some local idol makers were upset at the Apostle Paul. They started a riot, and they pushed him towards this place right here, where Paul was wanting to go and talk more about Jesus, but as he did it, the followers of Jesus around Paul knew that what would happen if he went there, he would be stoned. So they're pulling him back in one of those gates into that little place there, that big place there. They're pulling him back, begging him not to go in. And he's basically saying, let me in. I want to tell people about Jesus. This is a very cosmopolitan city where incredible things were happening. There was a lot of commerce here. It was a seaport town. When sailors got off the boat at Ephesus, they were greeted by this sign right here. It's actually the next picture. It's actually a footprint in the picture of a woman. And this was a sign telling sailors to go where sailors often like to go when they evidently came into seaport towns, towards the places where they could get things from women kind of under the table, but totally legal there in Ephesus. This is the kind of city it was. Cosmopolitan, wrecked with sexual sin, all kinds of idolatry. There was a famous temple here, a temple to Artemis. This is an artist's rendering of that temple. It's actually a recreation now of an ancient temple. You can visit this recreation. It's probably very much what it looked like. And all throughout the city, religion was alive, but the name of Jesus was not a big deal. So Paul goes there, spends a couple years, begins to teach about Jesus, begins to help people understand what's going on in the name of Jesus. But he was up against a lot of obstacles because people had internal struggles with what they wanted to do. And when they began to follow Jesus, he called them to do something else. They had struggles in the culture because to follow Jesus meant you would probably not have the favor of the local government. You would not have the favor of the local business people. If you were a guild or a trade person, you would struggle with that as well. So there's a big problem problem for the name of Jesus, for Christianity to spread. But in spite of all of that, there was dramatic Christian growth. Paul spends quite a bit of time there. He travels away from there, writes them a letter later after he leaves. We have it in our Bible called the book of Ephesians. Now the backdrop for all that's happening in the New Testament really is the culture of the Roman Empire. This last picture I have for you is what is left of the foot of the statue of the Emperor Trajan. And his foot is on a little ball there. That's actually the globe. I know that in school we kind of learned that Christopher Columbus convinced everybody that the world was not flat. But actually in the Roman times they knew the world was round already. It just got lost. That's called the Dark Ages. All right, So we rediscovered this. But Trajan's foot is on the ball. It's on a globe. And the little inscription under him says, I am the ruler of the world. This is the backdrop of all that happens in the New Testament. And because Rome was so strong and because they didn't like conflict, because peace equaled prosperity, Pax Romano, they called it, the Roman peace that existed. When Paul was doing his thing and it was creating some challenges, he finds himself in prison as a troublemaker, as an adjutant. And actually, when he writes the letter to the church at Ephesus that we have in our Bible, he's actually under house arrest. 
He's probably no more than ever a few feet away from a Roman soldier, likely even chained to that person while he went about his business doing the stuff he was doing. So he's in prison, preaching about Jesus, communicating back to a group of people who have his heart as he's left them to go on to do the work of God. And he writes for them a beautiful letter, six chapters, 155 verses, about 20 minutes to read. And today, we're going to look at a handful of verses, Ephesians chapter 1, about verse 3 through verse 14. In your Bible, in the English language, it's several sentences long, but in the Greek language, it's one sentence. Verse 3 through verse 14 is the longest run-on sentence probably in the ancient Greek language. It's 202 words long. This is the Apostle Paul. He starts by greeting everybody. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm writing to the saints at Ephesus. And I'm writing to you about this glorious relationship and life with Jesus that we have. And then something happens at verse 3. It's like he goes on a rampage and he can't stop. He's like got a motor mouth full of fuel, full of uh, desire to reach a destination. And he just gushes. From his heart to these people he loves about how awesome God is. And we're going to take our time today and work through those 202 Greek words. A slightly different number and ordering in English because sometimes words don't translate one for one. And sometimes thought for thought is better. And so in your message notes that you got when you came in, you can follow along in, in English. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we begin the longest sentence in the Bible, honestly, uh, from the Apostle Paul, who was a great scholar, but in this case, he sounds like a preacher at Four Corners Church who can't stop talking. Here we go. Ephesians 3, 1, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3, here we go. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Eleven times in these verses, some form of the phrase, in Christ is used. Verse 4, for he chose us, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given blood to forgive the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Several theologians for the last 2,000 years of church history have spent a lot of time unpacking these 202 Greek words. 
It's a big deal. There's so much here. There's so much here that makes some people a little nervous when they read it, if you have some theological background, because there's a few uh, power-packed theological words in here translated in English as election and predestination. We're going to talk a little bit about those words today. They're right here in the text. And this has been a major debating point in Christianity. You haven't grown up in church, you don't know this yet. You've missed an incredibly good fight. It has divided people and split churches. People have been killed over these words. Literally, that's not... Uh, exaggeration. But today, what we're going to do is not get stuck in those couple of words. We're going to do a 30,000-foot flyover and focus on the big picture of these 11 or so verses, these 202 words in one sentence. And in a phrase, these words are really all about worship. The whole thing Paul is doing, the gushing of his heart, the overflow of his heart being expressed in his words, that's what Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart comes your words. The overflow of his heart is is that his heart is overwhelmed, totally stunned, filled up to overflowing with how amazing God is. And when he starts talking about that, it's like he can't shut up. And then it just comes out. Phrase after dependent phrase in this long run-on sentence about how amazing God is. And while there's some finer points of theology that are introduced here, we're going to talk a little bit about, we'll talk about them more as we go through this study. The big picture today is, is for followers of Jesus in the room, is to try to capture a little bit about what's going on in Paul's heart. What makes a guy like Paul in incredibly difficult circumstances under house arrest. He's not free. And yet when he talks about God in the middle of a difficult circumstance where success is not assured, where ultimately his engagement with the Roman government is going to end in him losing his head literally because he's a Christian. How is it Paul, in a circumstance like this, can be filled to overflowing with worship? Is he some super spiritual giant? In some sense, yeah. But it's not that he's a giant, and because he's a giant, he's able to praise. He's able to see the perspective of worship, even in difficult circumstances. It's not because he's a giant. In fact, just the opposite. It's because he's able to see God, even when life is cruddy for him. Even when it's difficult and uphill, even when there's no end in sight, it's exactly because he can see God, even as he has a grasp on how difficult life can be, it's that very ability that makes him the spiritual giant he becomes. Paul taps into something. We get to watch it on display here that would be my heart for every follower of Jesus in the room and all those watching online. Somehow, like Paul, like so many of the biblical heroes, It's not that their lives are perfect or well put together or without obstacle or without disappointment. That is not at all what's happening. These people are not living on some kind of fairy island where everything's great and, you know, comes up rainbows and sunshine. It's not what's happening. They live in a broken and fallen world with pain, discouragement, frustration. But what sets them apart is that's not what is the overflow of their heart. The overflow of their heart 
is that in the middle of this, there is a God who is still worthy of worship. And it's that thing, that great God that captures their imagination, that, that populates their heart, fills their thought. And then in the overflow of that, all the stuff around them takes second seat. Pastor Will said it to you just a few moments ago. In worship, we get a bigger picture of God and a smaller picture of us. That's what's happening to Paul here. And so when he just starts talking to these people he loves, he's, he's going to deal with some stuff in a few chapters. Like there's some stuff to deal with. There's some practical life stuff, on the ground stuff to deal with. But his heart is full while he's in prison, writing back to people he loves, not with the memories, not with the hopes he has only for them, certainly not with the Roman soldier standing next to him that he has to check in with before he can go to the bathroom or you know, write a letter or have a visitor. I mean, he's not free. That's not what, what's on his heart is that this God that he is privileged to serve is amazing. It's overwhelming. He's beautiful. He's awesome. He, he has a plan. There's all kinds of language in the text we just read about the fact that God has a plan and he's working it out. And Paul doesn't understand it all. In fact, Paul calls it literally a mystery. But the mystery doesn't cause him to back away from God. The fact that God is big and awesome actually draws him in. And I just want to suggest to you, without being overly simplistic, that the key to most people's spiritual growth the key to your spiritual growth today. So that a year from now, you're not at the same level as a disciple that you are today. It's probably directly connected to your imagination being lit up by how amazing God is. It's probably getting a bigger picture of God. And this is challenging because our three to four ounce brains have a hard time conceptualizing the God who created everything. The God who, as Paul words it in these passages, listen to this phrase. Before the foundations of the world were set, God had a plan. I don't know about you. I have a hard time conceptualizing things that happened after the foundations of the world were set. I mean, I have a hard time going back in history very far and understanding a lot. I have a real difficult time understanding even what's going on right now as I stand on the foundations of the world that were set a long time ago. And Paul says that God is so amazing that before the foundations of the world were set, before anything was created, before anything that was, God had this plan, and then catch this, you're a part of it. You're a part of it. Wrap your mind around that. Of course, it's impossible, isn't it, to fully understand that. But man, if that can capture your attention, that whatever I'm going through right now, chained to a Roman soldier, writing back to a group of people that have my heart, knowing that they're in a difficult situation, everything conspires against them, everything seems to make the gospel harder. I mean, if they really give to Jesus, some of them are going to be killed. If they really give their lives to Jesus, their financial destiny is going to be different. And he writes back to them and says, here's what I want to, to capture a little bit of your attention. 
What I want to capture a little bit of your attention is, is that God had a plan for you before the foundations of the world were set. Now let that capture your imagination. Let that be the thing that you dream about at night. Instead of worry, which is preoccupying yourself with what might be, typically with a bit of a dark shadow over it, instead of worry, worship, which is being preoccupied about what is with a little bit of light on it, the light that comes from the God who's bigger than whatever else you see. And he's not living in a fantasy world. Yeah, sometimes those who are anti-religion, specifically anti-Christian, they talk about Christians as being weak-minded. frustrates me that somehow our faith is a crutch to help us get through a broken and ugly world. And so we have these imaginations and fairy tale stories that give us the ability to kind of limp along like a crutch in life. But that is not at all, they evidently haven't read the New Testament. That is not at all what's happening with anybody who wrote about Jesus in the New Testament. They're very aware of how ugly life is. I mean, they walk by the statue all the time of Trajan's foot on the globe. I'm the ruler of the world. And they knew that he was. They knew that Rome had power. They knew that to follow Jesus would put themselves in the real way, in opposition to the world in which they lived. They're not in a fairy tale. And yet, they regularly, because their hearts were filled up with how amazing God was and the privilege to follow God, the privilege they had in Christ, that that stuff, as real and present as it was, did not stop them and make them focus on only what was in front of them. They had the ability to see beyond. They had the ability to see how this life was connected to the life to come. When you think in your life, the handful of spiritual giants you've known, people who had deep faith, uh, people who had deep fidelity to the things of Christ, I hope you've known a few people like that. Most of us, our testimonies are populated with a handful of people who are wired that way. They, they had the ability to not just act like everything was good. In fact, just the opposite. They had the ability to speak with stark realism about the way things really were. But even as they spoke and described things as they were, there was hope in their language knowing that the way things really are today isn't the way things ultimately are in every sense of the word. A few weeks ago, we shared, and whenever I, whenever I have a chance to travel and like go to a place like where our work is in India, I come back filled up in a, in a way that's just special to me. And so it's, it's, it's in my head, it's in my heart, it tends to make its way into the messages. But I stood again this time in India like I've done before, and I looked around and I thought, in some real sense, these people have nothing. They know they have nothing. They know that in a way that is different than even 100 years ago because many of them have cell phones now. There's no infrastructure. It's very difficult to put wires into everybody's homes. And who does that anywhere anyway? So what they all do is they all save all their little bit of extra money and they buy very basic phones. Almost nobody has an iPhone, but they have often phones that can connect to the internet. If you have an iPhone, it's a really, really big deal in India. Right? They're just too expensive. So now these people who don't have much are able to look at a world in a way they've never been able to look at a world before and realize exactly their place in the world. And it creates a strong sense of have and have not. 
man, you're from America. What's, what's that like? That's, that's kind of the undercurrent we heard often. Like, you know, like we're all walking around like some star in a TV show with lots of money. And, you know, and of course, compared to them, it's kind of true. And so, so they're very aware they don't have much. And yet when we began to sing about God, oh, my goodness. They sung about God as if they actually believed that his grace given to them changed everything. And I stand there in amazement. And I realize that there's a way for a disciple to get so lit on fire. Their imaginations lit up with what it means to be a recipient of God's grace Grace to be in Christ. In Christ. So what we're going to do is just take a handful of moments now and unpack these words. In the bottom of your message notes, let me begin in earnest with you and give you a couple blanks. We're talking a little bit about worship today, and the truth is, is that humanity has never had a problem worshiping someone or something. We all do it regularly. Consider for just a few moments, the young teenage girl, many of them screaming as a boy band plays on stage. It's ridiculous. It's the stupidest thing you've ever seen, and yet it happens all the time. We should ban these boy bands, but it happens. I mean, ever since the Beatles, right? And they're, ah, you know, and all that stuff, and it's, and we want to make fun of them, but you let somebody who uh, is a good talk show host with a lot of access to cash stand on a stage and go, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get, and you watch that video clip, and you're like, oh my goodness, the girl band followers have, the boy band followers have grown up. That's all that's happened there, right? We worship all the time. Sports fans adjust adjust their schedules. They pay ridiculous prices for tickets. They buy access through cable. And they sit and they root and cheer for their teams. They pay big money for this. We worship all the time. Dads get fired up about going to Home Depot and working on a new project. I've been shopping for new power tools for a while now, and soon I'm about to buy. And it will be a grand and glorious day. And I'm going to do it before Christmas so I still get Christmas gifts. It's a great plan. I've got... And I'm so excited. And when I get them, I'm going to brag about them, post about them. We worship all the time. Things get in our heart, in our heads. They light us up, and out of the overflow, we talk about them. On the dark side, you know, adulterers talk about the people they're doing life with at the time and let somebody score some big thing at the, at the cost and expense of somebody else, and one of their friends is going to hear the story, and it's going to gush out of them. Television watchers praise their new television shows and talk about it, and coffee drinkers commend their favorite coffee shops to their friends. It's just what we do. We are worshiping machines. So the problem for us today is not let's start worshiping. Now we do it all the time. You see a movie you like, you talk about it. Something cool happens in your day, you talk about it. You talk about what's lighting you up, filling your heart, and making you smile. It's all around us. Human beings are worshipers. But disciples of Jesus have a decidedly different filter. 
It's the filter that helps them to understand with greater clarity what worship is and who ultimately is the best object of our worship. This is what makes a disciple of Jesus different from all the other worshipers in the world. And it's really no small matter. A disciple of Jesus, out of the abundance of the, of the overflow of their heart, the fact that they have been a recipient of grace, God was good to them in a way they could not earn it. He withheld his judgment in a way they did not reserve. Grace and mercy. Out of the overflow of that understanding, it can gush out of the heart. The truth is, is that in worship for a disciple, you do not have to have instruments. You don't have to have lights. You certainly don't have to have fog. You don't have to. And we don't have to create an environment where worship might happen. No, no, no. We all worship regularly, but disciples who are growing in understanding and are lit up, their imaginations are lit up by the fact that they're recipients of the grace of God, their worship happens in a place like this where we have all those things, and it happens in the conversations with one another. It happens in private when nobody's in the room. And sometimes this yourself, you're just overwhelmed that God would be that good to you. This is what was happening to Paul, I imagine. While he's not alone, he's writing, and maybe he's dictating, but he just starts talking. And I can imagine some scribe, they, they call them um, Emmausists, they, 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 uh, they're trying to keep up, trying to keep up. And he just starts talking, and it's one comma after another as he strings these dependent clauses talking about the greatness of God. So that's why I ask you a question, not meant to be judgmental in any way. It's a convicting sentence for me. When was the last time your imagination was lit up with the fact that God has been good to you? That he withheld judgment and has not given you what you deserved yet? When was the last time that you were lit up with the fact that you were a recipient of grace that you could not earn on your own? That you are a son or a daughter of the king. You have the word in our text today is you have been adopted into the family. In light of the rejection that's happening all over our globe, in our schools, at workplaces, among friends, even in churches, in light of all the rejection and loneliness present in the world, I mean, just stop for a moment and think about the creator of the universe, the only one that has a right to look down on anybody decided he wasn't going to look down on people. Instead, he was going to bring them into his family. He was going to go out and get them, chase them, compel them in, draw them in. And all kinds of images are used for his heart on this. He's the father waiting by the window, looking down the dusty road, hoping the prodigal son or daughter is going to return. And at the first hint of the dust coming up off the ground, as the son or daughter climbs over the hill and they're in eyesight, he gets up from the seat and the Bible says he runs to meet him. That was you. That was me. Or, or, or the other story, it's little Zacchaeus. And he's trying to look over the crowd because there's Jesus. And he can't see him because he's little. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree. Do you remember the song? 
and gets rid of whatever obstacle just to see Jesus, which is cool, and that's a testimony to his tenacity and strength, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, is that as Jesus is walking under, he stops, and he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house. That's the point of the story. Notice, not Zacchaeus, it's tenacity. It's the Jesus who stops and notices a guy that nobody else notices. And he doesn't just notice him and say, cool, you're up in a tree. He says, no, 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 come on down. I want to go to your house. That was you, by the way. That was me. It's the, the story of, of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in. And what's he going to do? Listen to this. Look at this image. Look at you. I'm going to come in, and we're going to have a meal together. That's Revelation, the scariest book of the Bible. And the picture of what God's trying to do is beautiful and welcoming and kind. That, the door that he's, it's your door. I don't know all that Paul had in mind and which metaphor, parable, or story about God. Maybe Paul had in mind some of the stuff about Moses. Murderer turned mission director. And Paul could just see it. Even though Moses' story was different, I have some of that in me. I, I, I was a betrayer. I was a I, was, I stood and held the coach of the people who murdered Stephen. That's Paul. And God still uses me. Paul, I can't believe that he would. This is why the lies of our enemy are so dangerous. Because they'll teach you on one hand that you deserve so much more from God. I mean, this person over here is blessed this way, and you're at least as good as they are, and why does that stuff happen to them? And why does it feel like it's always raining on me? This is not fair. And then on the other hand, if you mess up and you start to wrestle with the fact that you're imperfect, don't really deserve grace, he just keeps beating you down. You've so blown it. You've so broken. You're, you're so far gone. You're, you're too gone. Yeah, there's grace, but not for people like you. You've used yours up. So books in the Bible like Ephesians come to us from one man's journey whose foot was very much in this world, but whose other foot was pointed very much in the world that really matters. And he reminds us that who God is gets to dictate who we are. And God's character, which is gracious and kind, gets to dictate our heart, attitude, thoughts about him. And what he's trying to do is get us to lift our eyes up and focus not on ourselves and just worshiping all the small gods around us that grab our attention, but to look beyond and to see the bigger God who's actually at work. On your message notes number two, the truth is for people like Paul in the Bible, Sin problems are fundamentally worship problems. The sin you're struggling with, and you do, you do, I do, we do, we all do, 
As you grow in Christ, sometimes it's harder to discern. It's harder for people to see. As you hang around Christians, we know how to patch the walls in such a way that it doesn't look like sin is an active part of the environment. But sin is always present as long as we're in this world. So you're never going to be removed from temptation fully. And every time you're tempted, what's really going on is a cosmic battle that at its core is a worship issue. What has your imagination What is the overflow of your heart on this topic? So when people turn to things like, I don't want to like pick pet pet sins here, but let's just stick with some of the other, like sexual sin, which is so rampant in our culture. And this is not just because everybody's a pervert. No, no, no. It's not what's going on. Something has caught the imagination and taken the place in the thoughts of the heart. You know what I mean by this? I mean, I'm not talking biology here. Thoughts of the heart. Something has captured the attention that ultimately God is supposed to have captured the attention in that real estate of the heart. But instead, because of brokenness, exposure, who knows? Some conflagration of ingredients has conspired and now this idol over here my pleasure or the avoidance of my pain or the way I like to feel when I'm around this person I just feel special or I've been taken advantage over here and I feel very untaken advantage who knows but that becomes the thing that captures the attention at its core it's often identity stuff I just don't like who I am when I'm around this person but when I'm around this person But for the disciple, our identity ultimately is found in the one who made us, who shaped us, who had a plan for us one more time before the foundations of the world. When greed or fear about money, two sides of the same coin, capture a disciple's heart, what's happening at its core is a worship issue. Is it God's on loan to me as a steward so that I'm obligated to maximize the impact of money not only for my own wants and needs but ultimately for the kingdom of God so that I am both a good steward and saver as well as I'm generous because it's all the Lord's anyway and honest to goodness, I'm just grateful he lets me have some of it. Or... Is it somehow connected to my identity and worth? And does it assuage my deepest, darkest fears to have this much here? That's an idol. At its core, our sin problems are not because we're just mean and broken and selfish. Those are secondary fruit of what is fundamentally a worship problem. And when you lie... Most people lie to remove the immediate consequences, to take away the heat of the moment. When you lie, what's really going on is, is you or I don't trust the God who says truth is my call upon you. Truth will actually set you free. You'll be better and further along more joyful with truth. Instead, we say, no, 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 that's painful, that's awkward, so this thing over here 
I can imagine a way in which I can use my words or withhold my words to paint a different picture. Whew. I'm relieved now. He's just a horrible person. I don't know. You might be. But fundamentally, at the core, what you are is a person struggling with understanding. Does God have his right seat in all the real estate of your heart? And so Paul would tell you, not that he was exempt from these kinds of challenges, but what was really going on with him at this moment when he's writing and it's gushing out of him is for a moment he had crystal clarity that God is amazing. And anything given up in the service of God is not really giving up anything at all. And any cost is not really a cost at all. Any inconvenience, it's not really an inconvenience. In light of the mystery of God that swallows up every difficulty, that swallows up every challenge, that brings hope to every dark place, that even though I don't see the path, I know there's a path out of whatever I'm in more fully into God and God's plan for my life because before all the different stuff of the world was happening, before the foundations of the world, God ordered a path for me, not because I deserved it. Oh, thank you, God. Not because I deserved it. Because I had earned it after the fact. Oh, thank you, God, that it's not up to me. But because in the mystery of God, he orders the steps of here's the phrase, the folks that are in him. And how in him are you? You're adopted. You're adopted. You weren't in, but you were adopted. And Roman citizens knew all about adoptions. Most Caesars did not leave the crown to their children. Many of them didn't have biological children. What they did is they went out and they found a quality person that they thought could handle the weight and the responsibility, and they chose their inheritors of title who typically had no DNA that they shared, but they adopted them in, and they chose who their sons and daughters were and bestowed upon their adopted sons and daughters all the rights, privileges, access that would typically be given to a son or daughter. That's you and me, adopted fully into the family of God. Now, the, the power of this worship, number three there on your message notes, is that the worship of the sovereign God, what it does for us is both humbles and it emboldens us. I mean, on the one hand, you can't believe. I, I, I can't believe this. It's like, the, I, I, I struggled for a metaphor. It's kind of like if you grew up in a small town kind of like I did. I was born in Chicago, but from the time I was 11 on, I lived in a small southeast Tennessee city. And it was a great city. It's a great place to raise a family. I was so fortunate. But those people there know me as a certain thing, right? You guys will call me Ben or Pastor Ben. They have a totally different name for me. I'm known by the guy who's not my dad. My dad's name is Ben, so I'm Benny. Nothing wrong with Benny, but that's how they know me. And some of my closest friends, I'm going to tell you this, don't use it. They know me as Benny Wayne. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just very Southern and very fitting to the thing. And so when I go there, I'm Benny Wayne. I don't go there as often as I used to, by the way. 
Now, all that's better than the way my grandmother used to call me. My grandmother would call me Wayne, which in my mind is a little bitty kid about this tall with no anything. It's a sign of affection, right? So, so they don't know me. They weren't there when I graduated college and did some grad work and cut my teeth in ministry and was mentored by great people and still very imperfect, but I'm not that guy. So whenever I go there, you know what I feel like? Some, it's, it's me. It's not them. And I'm around them, and, and we start talking about the way it was in high school, and oh, no. Like, those are, were not the glory days for me. I'm so glad I'm not there anymore, right? I like what the Lord has done in my life. I like what I get to do life with. And so, so sometimes I, when, I, when I think about what it means to be adopted by God, it's like I have this image of what my life was, but then he took me in, and I crossed over. I'm not perfect, I'm, but I am not what I was. And tomorrow I'm not going to be who I am. And I'm incredibly humble. I'm not arrogant about that. I'm not better than those people I used to do life with. I'm just different now. And that's exactly what he does in your life. Sometimes he does it with our full cooperation. Sometimes he does it kicking and screaming. But he molds, he shapes, he works. And it's not a, it's not, it doesn't give us arrogance, but it does sometimes help us to walk with boldness. You know, I'm not the scared, uninformed guy trying to have conversations about concepts that I have no idea of. Now if I want to have conversations with some of those guys I grew up with, I still don't have a lot of the answers, but I'm confident now more in some of my knowledge that I've gained over time, and I'm confident to say I just don't know the answer to that. I don't have to pretend. So, so I'm both emboldened and I'm humbled. This is the power of worship. It's not that you're arrogant because God has done this stuff for you. You're humbled, but you're also not a pushover because you're a son or a daughter of the king. So you're nobody's doormat, but you're often gladly a servant. Now, isn't that powerful? Imagine how that gets played out in a marriage. <laughs> I'm not your doormat, but I'm here to serve you. Right? I, 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 I don't like it when you talk to me that, in that disrespectful way. But I'm going to talk to you about that in a way that acknowledges I've often talked to you in disrespectful ways too. You see this? So you can lose the edge. You don't have to walk with the proclivity towards offense. Because have you noticed in our world today, doesn't being offended feel powerful? I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it just woke you? I mean, to be offended? I mean, isn't it? Offense is yesterday's rebellion. It used to be that rebellion felt made you feel alive. You say, I can't do that? Watch me. And you just feel alive just by smoking a cigarette because only adults could do that. That's the 1950s. Right? You don't want to listen to rock and roll music? I'm going to listen to rock and roll music, and I feel very much adult, right? And you're an idiot anyway. And take, but today it's not pure rebellion, is it? I'm angry. I'm triggered. Okay, good. Yeah, maybe you should be. Awesome. But for the disciple of Jesus, 
You can stand with confidence that you're not a doormat. You have rights and privileges. You're made in the image of God and at the same time willingly put on the robe of a servant and get down and wash people's feet. Wow. How countercultural. And you know how you can do that? Because you worship a God who did exactly that. It's not because you're awesome, but he is. So it both humbles and emboldens you. The other thing is we, we can worship in the present right now, no matter what's going on around us, by his spirit, because God, by his spirit, is bringing us a hint of what the future is going to look like. Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter. It's not awesome for him. He doesn't know that in reality, in a few months, he's going to be dead. I mean, the journey he's on is ending in a very austere place. He doesn't know it all. He, he might have a premonition. By the time you get to 2 Timothy, the last book he writes in our Bible, you get a sense that he, he, he knows he's about to die. I'm being poured out. This is the final thing. I'm a drink offering. I fought the fight. I've run the race. I finished the course. And so he's, but not yet. I mean, that's, that's a few months from now. So he doesn't have it all figured out. But what he's able to do is he has a glance, a, 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 a glance, a glimpse of not just the immediate future, as dark as it's going to get for him, but he has, a, by the Spirit of God, a glimpse of what this future way over here looks like. And so in certain places in the Bible, he can write these words, for me to live is Christ, I'm in Christ, but to die is gain. Look, I don't know what it all looks like, but man, over there, because I'm in Christ and I'm with him, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty awesome. So there's language in this text we're looking at where Paul borrows from what the future is going to be grabs it and pulls it into the present, and it causes him to worship. And I don't know all the steps. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Some people in our church right now, tomorrow doesn't look great. I don't know. But I know if you're in Christ, I know. I know what that over there looks like for every one of us. And I know that it is as good as already done. Because you're with him. You're an inheritor of all that it means to be a son or daughter of the king. And when you worship, what it allows you to do is grab hold of the future awesomeness and bring it a bit into the present. And my God, don't we need some of that? That's not pretend world. That's letting that world that we don't see all the time speak louder than the world that's right in front of us because it's actually more real. It's what makes a biblical writer say, that they can take the body, to be absent from the body would be ugly, but it also is to be present with Christ, which is more real. And I want to make something finally clear to all the disciples in this room, your last blank. Your hearts will only truly be satisfied, ultimately, when it's locked in worship of him. Your spouse makes a horrible God. <laughs> so many people get married, they look at their spouse with love, and, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's an un, unmatured, untested. It's beautiful, it's real, it's authentic, but it's untested, it's unmatured. And then life happens and it's rough and tumble a bit. And the, you get past the honeymoon. It used to be the seven-year itch. Now it's the three-year itch, right? 
And you realize, wait, 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 wait. I've looked at it. They got some stuff they got to deal with. Of course your spouse does. Of course they do. But I've looked at my spouse to fulfill needs in me and make me feel certain ways that they were never designed to do. The only thing that can bring me true contentment as a disciple, the only thing that can bring you contentment as a creature made in the image of God, disciple or not, is to fix your heart, your mind, and your attention on the one who made you. It's the only thing. Money's not going to do it for you. The right number of followers and likes, if it makes you feel good at all, is temporary, isn't it? Now you got to do it again. The same level of creativity and posing or whatever, whatever it is you did, now you got to do it again. Now the only thing that satisfies is when the heart is, finds its full satisfaction in the one who designed the heart, the one who put a notch in there, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into all of our hearts. I don't know all that that means, but there is this thing in every human being that longs for true meaning and depth and reality. And the disciple of Jesus, more than anybody else, has a hint of what that is. And that is a heart and a mind that has stayed on Christ. So over and over and over again, Paul tells disciples as he's just gushing, be in Christ. You're in Christ. Walk in Christ. Know what it is to be in Christ. How in Christ are you? You're adopted. How stable is it? Before the foundations of the world, the path was set. What's it going to look like ultimately? It's going to look like this. That you're going to be by the Father chosen, by the Son brought in, and then you're going to be sealed, he says, by the Holy Spirit. It is done And that identity that he declares you to have can get in you in such a way that it doesn't make you an arrogant jerk, but you do walk with boldness. And you understand that when I stoop to serve in honor and glory of the one who stooped to serve me, I am at that moment at the highest reality of who I am. So when I serve my spouse, when I serve my community, when I serve my kids, when I serve the Lord, that actually is the privilege that I have. It's not demeaning. The world will never understand it. But disciples do. And worship, worship is the currency that builds that account. Worship is the oil that lubricates that engine. Worship is the picture on the front of the puzzle box that you keep referring to to figure out where this one goes and that one goes and which is the edge and which is the inside. Worship. And so it's normal for God's people to get together and worship. Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a step together as a congregation. I'm wondering today if Anybody listening doesn't yet have a relationship with Jesus. This passage talks about the power of God offered to you to have a relationship. And if you're feeling drawn towards him at all, we'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. We'd ask you to check the box, put the card in the offering bucket in a moment, and pray with me before we receive our offering and say to God, God, would would you save me? I I need that grace. I I need your mercy. I I don't want just the benefits. I actually want to follow you with my life. I want you to be Lord. 
Our next step B, it says, I want to be baptized. So December 8th is our last baptism here. It's going to be a great way to kind of close out the year and look forward to launching strong in the new year. You check the box, you get your questions answered, uh, and we get you signed up. But you begin the conversation simply by checking the box. Next step C says, hey, I'll engage 15 minutes of active worship every day this week. So I just want to give you three ways you can do this. You can open God's Word. You can read Ephesians, for instance. About 20 minutes to read all six chapters, 155 verses. You can reread these 202 words we looked at in one sentence in Paul. You can turn on worship music. And you can serve somebody else. There's a lot of ways you can do it. But find 15 minutes a day to intentionally put yourself in the flow of worship. Lift your eyes up to the one who defines it all. See what that does for you. The next step, D says, uh, I want to be a part of Grow, so send me the link. Um, November 3rd, by the way, I am not sure if that date is correct. November 11th is Grow, which is Developing Spiritual Habits. The second Sunday of every month is the second Grow, and so uh, you can be a part of that. Um, just check the box. We'll send you the links for all of them. The ones you haven't done, you can be a part of. And the next step, E says, please send me a list of items lead, needed by New Life Mission uh, for the canned food drive. As we ramp up for uh, Thanksgiving, uh, our church is always generous, and we have a canned food drive we're doing to help New Life Mission. We'll send you an electronic link of some of the foods they need, and then we'll receive those over the next few weeks. All right, why don't you set that card aside? If you call this church home, let me help you uh, have an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he has uh, blessed you with. As the folks who are coming to receive our offering uh, get set, um, I just want to talk to a, a special group of people within our church. Uh, there's a group of people here called members. Um, they've gone through Grow One. They've looked at what our history is, what our beliefs are, what we're about as a church, how we're organized and structured. And uh, at the end of it, they signed a little agreement that said, hey, I actually want to be a part of that now that I know what it is. And uh, if that's you, tonight we have a membership meeting right here in this room at 4 o'clock. Um, if you should have received communications, if not, just jot that on your Connect card. That's a major miss on our part. Um, we certainly don't want that to happen. But if we've missed one, let us know. But I want to tell you what you can expect tonight. And if you're our guest, you may want to lean in because this is what we do. This is how we're transparent about what God's doing. Here's the agenda tonight. I'm going to give you an honest snapshot of exactly where we are financially. And I want to let you know why you can come without concern. God has blessed us this year. You guys have been incredibly faithful. And you've been above faithful. You've just been generous. So it's given us an opportunity to have different kinds of conversations. So it's going to be a fun, celebratory financial report. And in 30 years of ministry, I haven't said that that often. So thank you. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the changes that are happening at Four Corners India. So the laws are shifting, and now our leadership on the ground there needs to respond to some of the changes in the laws. And so while the future is still bright for us and our investment there, it's going to look a little different. Tonight we'll tell you what we know. We don't know it all because it's still shifting. And we will talk about the path forward for our church. And we're going to do that totally transparently. Many of you are very invested in India. I'm personally very invested in India. And so we want to just tell you what's going on so you can make it a matter of prayer. And over the next year, before anything changes, because we have a year to respond, what we want to do is set our sights on the next steps for us. And so if you were wondering, should I come to the membership meeting? 
you should come. And then finally, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what next year looks like. And there's some incredible ministry opportunities in front of us that I think are going to excite you. It's going to make you proud to be a part of a group of people who are imperfect. But man, God's doing some amazing stuff among us. So just thank you for being a member of this church and shouldering the load with me and this staff team and all the volunteer leadership of this church. Let's pray about our next steps uh, right now. Father, thank you so much. God, the truth is, is that we need to worship you more. We need to have our imaginations lit with who you are. And we need to have our hearts overflowing with the privilege of being your son and your daughter. God, my prayer is that you would dim some of the lies of our culture and you would brighten up, you would make our minds more aware of what it means to serve an awesome God like you, to have the privilege to be your son or daughter. And so now, Father, would you take our next steps in our offering and would you cause them to go very, very far and wide for your glory, for your honor? God, would you take them and do great things with them? And I pray specifically for the man and woman in this room who is listening, who is declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I want to be your child today. I want to follow you with my life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.